who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. What do you get when you take two childhood friends with a passion for unexplored history and a whole lot of booze? You get us, Queen's Podcast. And here at Queen's, we are spilling the tea on all kinds of women from history. From New Orleans voodoo queen, Marie Laveau, to Marie Antoinette, and everything in between. Each queen is paired with a cocktail recipe that will totally get you in the mood to hear the fun, dramatic, and juicy stories of fascinating women from history. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers! Hi, I'm Keegan. I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through this old... I need I we need to start over because I said I'm mad. I know it threw me off too. I'm I can't. Not I couldn't okay. do it anymore. <laughs> do you want me to keep that in? Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Your Angry Angry Neighborhood Neighborhood Feminist. Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. One of those days, you know, we were just talking about this. I actually feel like it's been one of those weeks. Like, I, I need somebody who understands the planets to tell me what is going on because I feel like everything is off. And so we can go ahead and blame uh, <laughs> Madigan for getting how to do the opening today. On, <laughs> on the planets. On the planets, yeah. It's I'm fine with blaming the planets. It's the stars' fault. Yeah. I am I fully believe that. As long as the blame isn't on me, that's fine. Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> Never on that's you. ridiculous. Uh, well, I'm very excited to finally talk about this, mostly because it was something that I only... like. I've known that there's like a shady underbelly, but I never really did a look into it. I didn't really watch any of the shows or read any of the books. I was never like a big Playboy person, but especially growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, that was really when like Playboy fashion became a big thing. And it's having a resurgence now, like PacSun has a Playboy line and things like that. And it was just something that was very much part of our culture growing up. And we were very inundated with images and videos and celebrity of these Playboy bunnies and Hugh Hefner and there was just this facade around all of it yet everybody at the same time like knew it was shady and there was stuff going on that was not great. This normalization of Playboy culture um, and this kind of idea of making it wholesome and accessible and while on the one hand you know I've heard arguments and we can discuss this more in depth throughout the episode but 
I've heard arguments made that that normalization of Playboy was a good thing in terms of like sexual liberation. We all were kind of like easy. It wasn't this thing that you were supposed to be scandalized by. You know, we would watch um, Girl Next Door and it was just kind of like, yeah, it's a little weird that Hugh Hefner has these basically clone girlfriends who Who are all much younger than are all much younger than him. Like, yeah, that's a little weird. But like, he just seems like a nice old man. And, you know, we're, we're getting to see this kind of like inside life where these women feel or they're at least saying that they feel, they feel like liberated. liberated. Right. Um, but then at the other side, I, I've read of almost this sexualization of the girl next door where it was like, you know, like that girl that's acting like she doesn't really care or doesn't like you, like she gets naked too. Or that girl that looks really plain, she gets naked uh-huh. too. And yeah. so there is kind of two sides to that coin where in a lot of ways they made you know, the quote unquote average girl next door is sexy when that wasn't as sexy, I guess, before, which in my opinion, I don't really agree with that. I think that we've always had this like lust for innocence and things like that, especially right. in think, our like sexual culture. Yeah, I think people kind of saw it as the breaking down of the Madonna horror complex. Right? Yeah, Where it was like anybody can be can can enjoy sex and anybody can be sexy. Um, and a lot of women, I think, especially kind of like early on or not early, early on, but throughout like the late 60s, the 70s, the 80s. I think a lot of women thought that that was like a very sexually liberating idea. I think even throughout the the 90s when you had like a lot of these people going on to be Baywatch stars or um, into the 2000s when you had like... They were helping their careers. Right. And there was a lot of positives, at least from the outside that we were seeing where there are a lot of people that make the argument that Hefner is a feminist and that it's, you know, all of this kind of very broad blanketed statements about those things and you I know think a lot of women who posed for playboy would tell you at least on the surface that they were like owning their sexuality they were owning their body they felt good doing it you know i think that but Kim i Kardashian think when, said it, that. when but, it comes to the way that like uh you know there was a lot of different parts of playboy and we're gonna get into that but i feel like there's the pamela anderson's and the people that are probably like you know they're being photographed and loved on and everything is very glamorous but then you hear these stories about the women that actually lived in the playboy mansion and what their experiences were like it's almost like the stuff that we saw was really fun but then when they got home that's when shit wasn't so right great. well and even then even then even the people who are saying you know like i really enjoyed it I, look I'm going to go off and just say that, like, I don't care what you choose to do with your body. If you want to get naked and pose for a magazine, I don't have any issues with that at all. But I think to say that the idea of Playboy or the concept of like what Playboy represented was in itself feminist. um, I don't think that I would agree because it was all still very much through the lens of the male gaze, like very, very much for male gratification, the way the women were posed, the way the women looked. I mean, I remember watching Girl Next Door and it was always kind of a thing that someone would drop off a stack of pictures for Hugh to look at and then he would look at them under these magnifying glasses, right? Every like aspect of a woman's body like under a magnifying glass to determine who was like the most perfect to be the Playboy centerfold or whatever. And so I think the fact that all of these women fit a very, very narrow, specific ideal um, of beauty, (laughs) it's... It's not really as liberating as you think it is. It's inherently unfeminist, really. It's, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Hefner, 
who he is, how this whole thing started, all okay. those shenanigans. Yeah, let's do it. First of all, I do want to give a shout out to a listener, Riley, who wrote in um, requesting this topic. It was yes. something that we had already talked about doing, um, but that kind of gave us the push we needed to put it on. We kind the, of forgot about it. Yeah. We weren't thinking about it, so it was a nice reminder. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about Hugh Hefner. So he was born in Chicago on April 9th, so he's an Aries, uh, 1926. He described his family as conservative, Midwestern, and Methodist. His mother had... I know the type. <laughs> yes, uh, me too. <laughs> I went to a Methodist church. Um, his mother had wanted him to become a missionary. Yeah. So after high school, he served in the army and was a writer for a military magazine or a military newspaper, rather, and then went on to graduate from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Is that sure? That? I don't okay. know. I don't have it written in front of me. <laughs> in 1949, with a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and a double minor in Creative Writing and Art. So, having earned his degree, a psychology degree, a psych- that's just really mm-hmm. fascinating to me. It's, it's fascinating because he's very manipulative. When you know a lot of like the darker stuff exactly. behind the scenes, it does feel like he's he's good at playing people, and he is very charismatic, right? Yes. You know? um, ooh. Mm, chills. Uh, after graduation, he took a semester of graduate courses in sociology at Northwestern University, but he soon dropped out of Northwestern. So he, I think Hugh Hefner is actually pretty smart. I think he is yeah. a, a smart person. I think that you have to be smart, charismatic, personable, all of those things to do what he did, especially in that time. I think that he probably had really great people skills. He was very, very smart. He started something that didn't exist and made it incredibly popular and made a brand for himself. Like, I think that it would be silly of us to say that he's completely stupid. Oh, no. I mean, I I think he's a brilliant business person. I think that what he did with Playboy turning it from this like men's only magazine to something that people could. And I know it's kind of a joke that like I read Playboy for For the the articles, articles. but there were some really actually great articles, especially early on in Playboy. And because I think that is because he cared about social causes. Like the, the sociology doesn't really surprise me all that much. And the psychology really doesn't surprise me all that much because he was somebody who discussed um, you know, freedom of sexuality and things like topics that I feel like are discussed a lot in psychology. I can understand how that would maybe like pique his interest and bring up some questions for him and things like that. But it is also very like chilling to think about. Yeah. Playboy is a really interesting topic to talk about because I think it's it's such an illustration of how multiple things can be true at once. Like I do think that Playboy breaking ground on a lot of these issues that we're about to talk about, you know, in the early days of Playboy, you know, releasing these articles uh, with subjects about like sexual freedom or um, sexuality. Stories about gay men Mm -hmm. and, you know, having different types of people being in their centerfolds and covers and things. Right. Centerfolds and covers. I can't speak. (laughs) And interviewing people like Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King. I do think that it helped to push the culture and the zeitgeist in a more progressive direction. Right. However, you know, in January of 1952, he left his job as a copywriter for Esquire after being denied a $5 raise. Yeah. He's like, I'm out. That's very Aries energy. He's like, (laughs) I'm walking. No. Um, 
1953, he took out a mortgage loan of $600 and then raised $8,000 from 45 investors to One, launch Playboy. $1,000 being from his mother. I know. And I remember having seen a, I think it was like driven one of those like not behind the music but one of those kind of like things on vh1 about hugh hefner and it was an interview with his mom and she's just like this little old lady and she was just like well i i just believed in i i I don't like to talk about what he does but i believe in my son yeah she wanted him to be a missionary so she definitely wasn't like i'm super stoked that you're starting a a nudie magazine yeah exactly Um, but she was a very supportive mom very supportive gave him a a large loan because thousand dollars is nothing to sniff at in 1953 certainly not certainly not but Hefner wanted to start his own men's lifestyle magazine and he had come up with the perfect title for his magazine he wanted to call it stag party imagine if playboy had been called stag party it would have been the stag would have been the logo yeah it would have been totally different it would have been totally different it would have been way more masculine exactly because I, like. I feel like playboy became this thing that like was very feminized like a lot of women you know we grew up in the era of wearing the playboy bunny sticker to go tanning or getting the sunglasses that had the playboy bunny in the yeah, corner or even just the t-shirts with the glitter graphic on mm-hmm. it of the playboy bunny you know yeah no one would be getting a stag glitter sweater or maybe we would have i don't know maybe yeah. that would have been the thing i'm not sure but it does sound like it would have had like a lot more like masculine energy going on but there was already a men's magazine called stag so they had to think of a new name so hefner his wife millie and his business partner eldon sellers threw out names like top hat Gentleman, sir, and bachelor before sellers came up with Playboy. Which yeah. I kind of like. Yeah. Um, this is the first thing that makes me so angry. And I'm a, I'm a, I already knew this story. I've known this story for a while because I'm a huge Marilyn Monroe fan. But w- before she became famous, she had to make a car payment. And to do so, she agreed to pose nude for a calendar. And she did so under like a pseudonym. You know, she was starting to act at this point and didn't really want these photos to be like recognizable as right. her. Yeah, she told the photographer like, I would like you to make my face unrecognizable in these photos because she didn't she she knew where she wanted her career to head. But she did this calendar really out of desperation. She did. Exactly. This wasn't just like because she had chosen that this was something she wanted to do. It was because it was a necessity in her life. So the fact that Hugh Hefner would find these photos and take it upon himself to release them without Marilyn's consent in his very first issue of Playboy magazine is absolutely disgusting to me. He had such a gross obsession yeah. with her that in Fixation. 1992, he bought the crypt next to hers. Mm-hmm. They've never met. I just think that is the creepiest, most disgusting, sleaziest thing. And it's your first issue. Right. And he never... He never paid her any money for this. No. She never saw a dime for these photos. And he never paid for it. Like, that was not something I feel like that was openly discussed, especially with Marilyn Monroe being someone who is still recognizable to, like, kids today. You know what yeah. I mean? I think he did pay for them. He paid, like, $500 or something to buy the photos from... From the person who took them or you, from the calendar, but he didn't pay Marilyn no, anything. No, but he never paid Marilyn anything. And so it is very weird and creepy that he would maintain... Because you're right, they never met in person. And he maintained this very weird fascination with her. And then to... I remember that being such an icky thing when he died, knowing that he was going to be interred next to her. Yeah. Because I was like, this woman probably would hate hated that. you. Like She probably felt so violated 
that you used her, her body, her celebrity to sell the first issue of your magazine. But it, it speaks of two things for Hugh Hefner. One, that he doesn't have a problem exploiting women. And two, again, he's a good business person. Like yep. at this point, at the time when the first issue came out, she, she was a celebrity. was everything. She was the sex symbol. He saw her as being the most perfect specimen that had to be a part of Playboy. And that was all he saw her as, which is just so unbelievably upsetting. Yeah, it's, it's really upsetting. But anyway, Playboy was a hit. And not long after its inception, it began to publish things other than nude photos of women, like we said, articles. And despite the fact that Hugh had obviously warped views about women, um, mainly that he portrayed them solely as sexual objects, he had surprisingly progressive views on other things. Yeah, certainly. They actually had something called Playboy Philosophy Column, and that began in the 1960s. And they covered topics that included LGBTQ rights, women's rights, censorship, and free speech. They were also an early proponent of cannabis reform and provided funds for the National Organization for Reform of Marijuana Laws in 1970. Um, Another really big thing that Hefner did at the very beginning of all of this in 1955 was that he had decided to print a story that Esquire had denied called The Crooked Man by Charles Beaumont. And this story, I feel like, is actually pretty famous because I don't know if I've read it, but I've definitely heard of this story. And I feel like I saw a short film based on it. But it takes place in this dystopian future where heterosexuals are persecuted and homosexuality is the norm. So it kind of is supposed to make us think about how, you know, we treated gay people Mm -hmm. at the time and things like that. And this was 1955. And the fact that Esquire had denied it really showed where... Hefner stood on that particular issue and it did have a lot of backlash for him printing out that story. But Hefner stood by it saying, if it was wrong to persecute heterosexuals in a homosexual society, then the reverse was wrong, too. Yeah. And he, like he continued to speak out about like same sex marriage right. equality. I mean, and these are the kinds of things, right, where it becomes it, it becomes complicated. Not really, because he is a predator and we're going to talk about all of that. Like, nothing forgives the things that he did and the things these women went no. through. But multiple things, we contain multitudes, right? Like, multiple things can be true at a time because we've already talked about what a good business person he is. And this was very early on in Playboy that he decided to take a stance that very well could have gotten his magazine um, shut down. Yeah, really. it may not have been the most popular viewpoint in 1955 but he was willing to take that risk but I also think that he was a person that like doing the wrong thing was almost probably going to get him more press as well oh, sure like I feel yeah. like doing the controversial and adding these additions also made the magazine cooler yeah. to a broader variety of people right and it expanded you know who wanted to purchase Playboy right because yeah. now you've you've kind of like creeped into a new market you've creeped into like an LGBTQ market um you've creeped into as we're about to talk about into um the a more racially diverse market right because so first of all, and this is kind of jumping ahead of just a, a year or so, but in 1971, he also acknowledged that he had experimented with bisexuality, which right. was a big deal for a man, because at that point in the early 70s, um, he was already starting to cultivate this like ladies man persona. So for a man like that, who's supposed to be like, oh, can you imagine like Hugh Hefner like gets all these chicks, right? Yeah. And for him to come out in, in the early 70s and be like, yeah, like I've I've hooked up with men before. Um, it did yeah, do he's, a- Well, he was always just like, you know, 
there was stuff going on. At, like, there was orgies all the time. I can't say I just slept with women. You know, yeah. there, there was stuff everywhere. But it was on know. the front end of that, like, kind of sexual revolution yeah. in, in that way. Well, it is interesting because later on in the story, when we talk a little bit about some of the people that we meet through the A&E documentary yeah. that was done in the docuseries, it is interesting discussing one of the stories because... Uh, he was very close to his like personal physician yep, yeah. and there's a lot of you know the, her, the daughter describes him as being like soulmates you know and it wouldn't surprise her if that was what their relationship was as well in fact she's pretty sure that at times they they would be intimate but it wasn't like they were in love with each other they were best friends and yeah. they were probably on a lot of drugs and they would hook Definitely. up you know yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, when his Playboy clubs and private key clubs um, started, they were racially diverse, which was a radical move at the time, given the views on interracial sex, especially at the time. So to have these like racially diverse clubs that were considered to be highly sexually charged, even if yeah. no actual sex was happening there, um, it was definitely a very flirty space. And so to allow it to be this kind of interracial space was something that was kind of radical at the time. Totally. I mean, there's one, you know, former bunny named Jackie Nett, who to this day has so many wonderful things to say about Hugh Hefner. You know, she did have some bad experiences like outside of the club that we'll talk about. But as far as her experience working in the club for Hugh Hefner, she still speaks about it like very fondly, which is interesting because they're really I mean, everybody has a different story to tell. And I think that they're all really valid. And uh, I do find it nice to hear at least that this particular woman felt that felt at least that she was being supported at the time. Yeah, I'm, that I'm glad that she had a good experience. Like right. It doesn't negate all of the bad experiences. And to be honest, like probably her good experience was not the norm. I, I would imagine totally. it was that was an exception. Yes. Yeah. And uh, you know, the thing is because I have a friend who used to work as a butler at the Playboy Mansion in the 70s and 80s. And people have, when Hugh Hefner died, I made a post where I was like, dude, like all this shit with Marilyn Monroe was creepy. Like I'm not, I get that he did X, Y, Z, but like I'm not like sitting here crying into my Wheaties about fucking Hugh Hefner dying. Right. And he was kind of upset because like he knew Hugh Hefner. He liked Hugh Hefner um, and had nothing but good things to say about Hugh Hefner and working at the Playboy Mansion. Now, this is also a man. So yes. that's a different situation. Working um, as a butler. And I would love to hear right. <laughs> all of the uh -huh. things he witnessed. Yeah, you know? totally. But I think for a lot of people, because Hugh Hefner had these multiple sides to him and they did see that he was capable of being kind or sweet or quote unquote looking out for you um, or whatever else that they either had rose, rose colored glasses on about any negative experiences that right. they had. And then also there's even when you talk about like Ted Bundy, there are people who are like, he, he was nice to me. He was nice to me. So I don't know. Yeah. And I, but I think that another thing as well is that there was something about the selection process that I think probably made a lot of women feel really good. Like you were saying, he would get the magnifying glass out and he was so, you know, hyper-focused on what these women looked like that I'm sure being picked felt 
like a huge accomplishment, especially because, you know, they wouldn't know it at the time in, you know, the 60s when the Playboy clubs were opening. But by the time, you know, the 70s and 80s came around, you did have some level of fame being elevated to that status. And I can see why just you would see yourself as being special. And I can see that as also being beneficial to how you're viewing your experiences. And the bar was also pretty low because I think that same Playboy Bunny that you're talking about um, or the person who worked in the Bunny Club, Jackie, she talked about how like, well, you know, you're, you'd get her asked as a secretary and you'd make way less money. So like for me, it was great. And so I think that having that lens that a lot of these women were like, well, we were going to get harassed no matter what. Even if we were working a secretary job, we were going to be treated like shit. At least here, I felt like I had a little bit of power and I got paid a lot better. Yeah, you know, exactly. But what's also just so limiting for these women is that when they signed on to be bunnies, they had to sign these contracts, essentially saying that like they won't change their appearance at all. And demerits are doled out to bunnies if their appearance doesn't meet the requirements. And there's also no dating or mingling allowed between customers and the bunnies. There was a bunny mother who took responsibility for the women working as the bunnies. She would be in charge of scheduling work shifts, hiring, firing, and training. And she would also be a part of the weekly weigh-ins. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite thing to talk about. Um, if you gained like more than a pound, with the exception of like water retention, you were punished in some way, shape, or form. You know, if you gained five pounds, you were like suspended for a little while. And this former bunny mother, PJ Mastin, talks about it saying, I think it was part of it to humiliate these girls. Absolutely. And it was a way for them to be pitted against each other and this unbelievable expectation of what they had to put their bodies through. I mean, the costumes, I didn't even take a lot of notes on that, but they were so restricting and painful. You can can tell when you look at them, like, so Gloria Steinem, you know, came out and did a bunny's tale and she exposed Hefner's New York Bunny Club as being exploitative towards the women who worked there. And you can see in her pictures, I feel like very much especially, but any of these bunny pictures, those corsets that they have them in are so they've got boning. They're so restrictive. I was going to say the boning in there is like stiff. Yeah. I mean, and even though, you know, you've got Jackie saying, well, they paid us pretty well. They might have paid them a little bit more than they would have made working as a secretary or any other kind of job that would have been easily accessible for a woman at that time. Um, They still didn't pay them as well as they had advertised. And then also they expected them to foot the bill on things like their own high heels they had to pay for, other aspects of their wardrobe. They they had had to to pay pay $5 like if there was any alterations that needed to be done, cleaning fees for their costumes, nylons, you know, things like that. Another thing that they had to go through was once they were hired, they had to go through a medical exam, which included a, quote, internal physical, which I can only assume is like a pap smear, which gross. Um, And this was done by a Playboy sanctioned doctor, which is like, uh, I don't I don't like that string of words together. Not Um, one bit. But so even though Hefner, you know, had these kind of progressive views about race and sexuality, I feel like his views on women would creep in every now and again, because I think people thought that he was like, oh, this feminist who's for like women's liberation and like he's doing all these things for women. Um, But he did write in 1970. 
He stated that militant feminists are unalterably opposed to the romantic boy-girl society that Playboy promotes and ordered an article in his magazine against feminists. Yeah, I think his militant feminist quote is actually pretty infamous among like the feminist community because that was kind of around the time that there was this debate as to whether or not he was doing more help or harm because I think Gloria Steinem was able to kind of shine this light on the harm that Hefner was doing for this quote unquote sexual revolution where everybody else was maybe just seeing the positives. So this right. was the first time that he, I think was able to really show his true colors yeah. about how intimidated he was by somebody calling him out on his shit. Uh, absolutely. You know, this was also around the same time as the um, Miss America protest. Yes. Where the, you know, people who organized that protest compared the Miss America contestants to Playboy bunnies in yeah. a negative way. And I think that Hugh Hefner really took offense to that. Yeah, he wanted, I think he wanted to be definitely seen as this political activist businessman who was the head of the sexual revolution in a lot of ways and anything that would potentially damage that like squeaky clean image he didn't want that to get yeah, out to the world it was very strange though because at the same time that's why it was like an enigma with with Hugh Hefner because like at the same time that he wanted everyone to see him as this like progressive you know person who believed in women's rights at the same time he would brag and it was kind of like a running joke about like how many of the playboy playmates he had he slept, slept with, with how many centerfolds he had slept with he had started you know of course that reputation as this you know ladies man casanova type who always had multiple women at on his arm at any given time right um so he was sim- he was portraying himself as this very as a person who was almost like a feminist type. Right. And then at the same time also being like, yes, I exploit women all the time. Yeah. Like a dog. He was doing both very visibly at the same time, yet for some reason totally getting away with it. It's a bizarre concept. It it is. It's like, it's so weird and it takes a special kind of person to be able to pull that off. Yeah, certainly. Well, I wanted to talk a little bit more about Jackie Nett, just talking about, you know, the no touch policies and things like that, because I think her story is a really good example of how the women working as Playboy Bunnies weren't taken care of and how she kind of sees how they were. It's just an interesting story. So she, like we said, looks back on her time very fondly uh, with the Playboy Bunnies and the mansion and all of that. She says that Playboy takes care of their own since they financed half of her undergrad degree and making sure that things like the sexual harassment and assault were never tolerated within the walls of the club. Okay. Emphasis on within the walls of the club since Playboy was known for its no-touch policy. So when men come to, you know be entertained at the Playboy Club. They're not supposed to touch the waitresses. If they do, they are supposed to be excused from they, that. They would have to be they would have to be seriously naive to think that these women aren't going to be harassed the second they walk outside. Oh, yeah. Like, you know that that's going to happen. And And I think they did know that. Yeah, so you should be providing security for these women to and from their cars every single day. Definitely, definitely. Bare minimum. Trigger warning for sexual assault right here. Uh, Jackie was once raped by a patron outside of the premises. She said reporting the incident to the police was out of the question. 
Quote, at that point, the woman was usually seen to be in the wrong. I didn't want to go through with that. But she knew the man who had abused her, so she told management. Now, I've heard some other stories from women where they say that they were discouraged from reporting the crime to the police and instead were like, let us handle this. Like, let the security and, like, the inside people handle all this so it doesn't get out and things like that. I'm sure both things were true. Exactly. So the next time that this man came into the club, she pointed him out and that was all she had to do. The man was banned for life. And even though, you know, he was like, she's crazy. Like, this is a lie. Apparently they were like, nope, we believe her. You're out of here. Well, I am glad that. that she had a good experience. But again, that to me doesn't feel like they took care of her because again, no. like like I'm saying, like they had to know you are creating, regardless of whatever Hugh Hefner would say, whatever anybody running these clubs would say, these women were sexual objects. Like that, that is what they were. And they, and, and again, I don't have a problem with you choosing a career path where, you know, you're working in a club or you're working as a dancer or whatever else it is. But you should However, be protected doing that You job. should be protected because these people are viewing you as a sexual object. These people feel like they have some kind of ownership over you, exactly. I feel like often. And so every single one of those girls should have been walked to their car by security every single night. Agreed. Like that's... You, with, There's no way that they should have, if that is the rule and it's stated as such, then they should know better. They need to keep eyes on the outside of the premises. It's absolutely ridiculous how yeah. unsafe that situation is. And there are so many stories where they aren't supported like Jackie is and she, they don't see it for as positive as it was. They Mm-mm. see it as being, you know, silenced. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I will say this, though, about like what Jackie just said. When I watched the interview with the director of um, the Playboy Secrets documentary, um, they were talking about how, especially at this time, we already, even now, there's so much about um, women reporting their sexual assaults and not being believed and feeling discouraged from doing so. And so a lot of people choose not to report their sexual assaults for that reason to this day. So, of course, that was happening a lot back then, but especially because the Playboy Mansion and Playboy Clubs were seen as like inherently sexual places, they would really say like, well, a woman knew what she was up against when she walked into a place like that. If a yeah. woman walked into the into the Playboy Mansion, she should have expected to be assaulted or raped. And you know? I'm glad that because Jackie felt that way and she did go to the people at Playboy and they took care of it. Like I'm glad that she was cared for in the way that she wanted to because yeah. it sounds like in her telling, she didn't want to go to the police, especially, you know, she was a black woman that I think as another element to that yeah, of being definitely. unbelieved in yeah. like the 50s and 60s. So I can understand why she would trust the people she knows rather than this establishment that has proven time and time again that they don't believe you and they Absolutely. don't trust you. So I, I, I don't blame Jackie at all not like, one, in this oh, situation at clearly, all. And I'm so glad that they handled it as well as they did. Exactly, but it, I think know? that it still says a lot about the pressure for decades that these women felt that, you know, they that they couldn't get help elsewhere. And I really do believe that as, you know, I, I don't really know about how the culture shifted from like these fancy gentlemen's clubs to these crazy orgies at the mansion all the time. I but think it almost seems like all an, happening at the same time. Right. Just didn't it, know. But it does appear to kind of be this like escalation and 
lack of rules and craziness. I mean, you hear about parties at the Playboy Mansion. I'm pretty sure Maxwell went, once went to a party at the Playboy Mansion. Oh, yeah. Mansion. I mean, when we first moved to Los Angeles, yeah. that was something that was, we very well could have been invited to a party at the oh, Playboy yeah. Mansion. They were having parties that were kind of not open to the public because they weren't. You had but to be invited. You, you had to be invited, but like you could find someone you to invite you. You could find someone to invite you yeah. to a Playboy Mansion party if you really wanted to go. Like yeah. I knew people who had gone to, to Playboy Mansion parties. And there are like celebrities having sex with people in the pools and he's oh, like the grotto I remember hearing was just like so gross disgusting yeah. I mean um, Jennifer Saginaw who we're going to talk about a little bit discusses how often she saw Ron Jeremy <gasps> oh have I told I knew a girl who like was I think she was like feeling really sick or something and got up in the middle of the night and saw Ron Jeremy sitting on her couch <gasps> this was at like an apartment in like Toluca Lake like, oh no yeah yeah, Why and was she was there? like 18 years old at the time. Her roommate was this like British absolute pervert douchebag. He was so, he made me so uncomfortable every time I saw him. He was awful, but I always like knew his roommates for some reason. So I would always run into the guy again. And yeah, he he was this older British guy that went to probably the Rainbow or something because like he, Ron Jeremy, if you're in LA, go to the Rainbow. You will see Ron the Jeremy. Rainbow room? Not the Rainbow Room, the Rainbow. I don't know where that That's is. That's in West Hollywood. Um, Oh, yeah. By Doheny. Yeah. It's right by Max's parents' yeah. place. So, like, his Max's dad sees him there all the time. But, yeah, like, I and my friend was just, like, 18 years old, walked out, not feeling well, and was like, what the fuck is he doing here? And was, like, terrified Absolutely and, like, locked herself not. in her bedroom all night. Like, he is a terrifying human being. Google him. Ugh. Oh, my God. But, um, you know, this wasn't a place of, like rules and protection and safety it kind of just seemed it really was this like girls gone wild kind of situation but they tried to portray it as something more classy than that to but the I outside feel like in the magazines and even but i but like think about all the movies in the 2000s like sure. i think that it definitely shifted like with girl next door and things like that because you're yeah. starting to see more of the recklessness and we know that that happened because to me that that shows like no one's really looking out for you. There's no way that yeah, someone's looking out like for you. Yeah, but I feel like when I watched Girls Next Door, there was this feeling that they were protected. It felt like the girls were protected, like the girlfriends were protected. Right. It felt like, you know, they didn't ever show any drug use and and Hugh Hefner went out of his way to make sure that like that stuff was never shown to the public and yeah. like, they never showed like any of the girls doing like crazy parties or like I think Kendra would maybe like drink when they were out and get a little wild, but like not to not to excess by the standards of reality TV in at that time period, you know, right. so I feel like they, they still showed to contain like a, it. Yeah. Right. Like they didn't want it to be this girls gone wild, like trashy. They still wanted it to keep this element of like class and yeah. exclusivity, even whenever it wasn't that at all. You totally, know, totally, you totally. Know? Well, can we talk about the drugs a little bit? How about we take a quick break? Good idea. And then we'll talk about we'll drugs. Talk about drugs. <laughs> yeah. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. 
With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy, but how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled, or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were, and it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear, and each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. Okay, and we're back. Ready to talk about drugs. Let's do okay, it. Okay, so I mentioned her earlier, and there, there was a woman by the name of Jennifer Saginor who was just yeah. a six-year-old girl when she moved into the Playboy Mansion with her father. Now, after I read this story and listened to parts of this story, I'm going back and watching all six parts of this docuseries. I really want to watch it, too. <gasps> yeah. Holy Moses, I did not know. Oh, it's insane. So her father was named Mark Saginor, and he was, like I mentioned earlier, like, Hugh's bestie and also his personal physician and he also had the nickname Dr. Feelgood which if you remember from way back when when we talked about John F. Kennedy in our Problematic Presidents episode there was a Dr. Feelgood in that situation as well who was very similar it was the guy that supplied the drugs right and Jennifer talks about you know growing up you know with Hugh Hefner and the kinds of example that that showed her, but also just how her father was really not a great example to her growing up in the mansion. She really felt like she was forced to grow up too fast. Yeah. Um, Her father encouraged nudity with her and her sister, like encouraged them to like embrace it. Um, He took her clubbing when she was only 15 years old and he would keep jars of pills in the house labeled uppers, downers and quaaludes. She would also witness many of the naked parties and sex acts. She once even swam into, I think it was like John Belushi or someone having 
having sex with a bunny in the pool. Oh, like no. she was so, but it was also like very normalized to her. And one thing that she did witness was that she didn't have any rules. Like he was Uncle Hugh. She didn't have a curfew. She didn't have to worry about her body. But she was very close to the women that lived in the house. And she noticed the discrepancies and how they retreated. Like they had a 9 p.m. curfew. Yeah. She could kind of do whatever she had, you know, wanted to do. And when she was 15 years old, she actually started dating one of Hugh Hefner's girlfriends, which I can imagine would be kind of scary. Um, She goes by or she refers to this woman by the pseudonym of Kendall. And apparently the two would make plans to get off the property and away from cameras to be together. Their relationship unfortunately ended after Hefner invited the young women into his room together. Uh-uh, dude. Yeah, after, afterward, Kendall left crying and Jen went to her room and that relationship ended. Uh, the friendship between Dr. Feelgood, Mark, and Hugh Hefner kind of temporarily ended but mostly ended after Mark was accused of drugging and sexually assaulting a 19 year old girl and calling in a second man to take semi-nude photos of her as a result he lost his medical license for five years and Hefner banned him from the mansion criminal charges were then dropped uh, for Mark after he completed a rehabilitation program and all <laughs> yeah it's okay that, that's some bullshit because it's like he definitely did that more than once like this is somebody whose job it was to provide um uppers downers and quaaludes to To young women who are vulnerable at the party um at the mansion so i have a really hard time believing that that was his first time doing it and then he did it only the once so you know that's fine he just completed a rehab program and everything was a-okay yeah drop the charges like i well mm. he he's also like there's a bigger conspiracy that like nobody wants to look at and like it's kind of true, but you're also part of yeah, it. Yeah, but you're part of it. That's exactly yeah. the thing. I believe you completely. I mean, yeah. there's there's records of like Bill Cosby being there and doing some shady shit. Right. So I know that that is the case. Like I know but that you are a part of it. But not only are you a part of it, you facilitated some yeah, of it. You exactly. had to have. Like you don't get the name Doctor Feelgood at the Playboy Mansion <laughs> unless you are providing pills to people. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, Jennifer was also made aware of these, quote unquote, shadow mansions that sound terrifying. So that was where these women who like didn't make the cut or, you know, this one businessman who started the first one, he had like it under the ruse that he was like a modeling agency and all this kind of stuff and would lure these women in under false pretenses. And this one particular businessman, um, he was like going to start this like storefront or whatever for his agency. But then there were dorms upstairs. And after the girls would go to bed, he would like prowl around and be inappropriate with the people that were like working for him, you know, and these were like not known to the public, not known to Playboy. Really? These were like seedy underbelly secret Playboy mansions where anything went. Yeah. I do remember that Jennifer Saginaw did say that, she knew that they were kind of like mini mansions because some of the people who worked at the mansion had either started them or were also working at these yeah. at these other houses. It's like the Playboy Mansion, but with even less protection, which is terrifying, terrifying. because there wasn't a lot of protection going on for a lot of these women. And especially another thing that they pointed out in that interview that I watched was that these were mostly 
one, very young women. So we're talking about like 18, 19, 20 year olds. Oh yeah, Gloria Steinem lied and said she was 24 and then they made fun of her for her age. Yeah, she's too old. Yeah. So uh, they're very young women, first of all. Um, And then secondly, a lot of these women were coming from abusive backgrounds or um, a lot of trauma in their backgrounds. So these, this out of like, classic abuser handbook right you pick very young vulnerable women who don't have a lot of stability in their lives who are maybe trying to recover from past trauma you give them the illusion of stability oftentimes inviting them to you know a place to live for free a place to live Mm -hmm. a way to work you know I mean the modeling agency the model photographer thing it's such an old trope because it worked so well you know they would prey upon women and say you're so beautiful you could be a model why don't you come with me let's do this yeah. you know what I mean yeah. there are there are many stories that happen even now of people that are are very lured in by the way that they're treated nicely to begin with or oh, yeah. lured in under false pretenses well, and then you're in a situation that you don't know how to get out of and it's also why one so one of two things like I feel like you can take two examples from the girls next door right you've got like Holly Madison and you've got Kendra Wilkinson and you've got Holly Madison saying that like she was in this kind of like phase where she didn't realize it she was, was in a cult abuse yeah until later and then you have Kendra Wilkinson who will defend Hugh Hefner to this day because and if you watch Girl Next Door she talks about it she came from a very unstable background and she really did see Hugh Hefner as this father figure savior figure yeah um, so she won't speak badly about him she even had him like give her away at her wedding you know yeah. like so she which was also very like strange like he had a lot of control over uh-huh. th- these women's private lives and who they could marry and date but I and- think she felt like it was okay because he had saved her quote unquote from a bad situation and so she felt like and if everything- she knows nothing else since then yeah like I, she was I like don't 19 when she moved into the yeah. house and, you know? and if you only know abuse or manipulate or manipulative situations, even when you're not aware of it, I think that that can happen. You know what I mean? Like she never left. She never really. She still seems like she's very stuck in that world. And I think that it's very easy for, for people who have been hurt to latch on to something when it's not as bad. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Even if something yeah. was manipulative and and controlling, you know, I think there is a lot to say about how that can also be seen as like care and generosity and right. again, fatherly. Or you, you push these other, you push the negative negative things out because you're like, oh, but like I get to live in this house and I have somebody who's making meals for me and I don't and I get have to go to, shopping and like look great all yeah, the time. I mean, and and poverty PTSD is a real thing. I mean, we've both experienced it to like a, a much lesser degree, but like there's, there is that feeling, you know, I always talk it could about happen again. That, yeah. That it could happen again. You know, I always talk about like being so broke that like I couldn't afford gas. I couldn't afford, you know, like I could barely afford food, you know, like things yeah. like that. And never wanting to experience that again. So there is a thing of of like, she got to leave a situation like that and go to a place where it's like, yeah, there's a lot of rules, but like, I never have to worry about where I'm putting my head at night. I never have to worry about um, what I'm having for dinner. So yeah, it's not the ideal situation, but it's better. He's given me a better life than so I have no room to complain about anything. Yeah. I have no room to ever be upset about right. anything. And you was know? Kendra ever like one of his girlfriends? Yes, she was. It was it was those three. So it was Holly, Bridget, and Kendra. Okay, were the three girlfriends he had when he was on 
that was, show on that show and holly yeah. was like the head girlfriend of course and kendra was the young girlfriend got you <laughs> yeah. got you yeah because i i know way too much about that show i watched you really that show. do I'm, i watched that show so much <laughs> but i feel it's very helpful to this episode so i appreciate it um but i learned a little bit about a early girlfriend named Sandra Theodore oh, who we God. dated from 1976 to 1981. Yeah. So if this is a testament to how he treats his girlfriends, yeah. I think that this is interesting. So Sandra was only 19 years old when their relationship began and Hugh was 50 years old. Yeah. At the time, she believed that they were in love. He love-bombed her hardcore and like the relationship moved super fast. They moved in together very quickly and she said that at the time he made her feel exceptional. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. In the documentary, she says, I was groomed. It was slow grooming to get to that point, And he broke me. And in the interview that I listened with the director as well, she discusses how often that phrase yeah. is uttered in that documentary where you just see how he broke these people in so many yeah, he different ways. Like, he wore them down. He wore them down. Exactly. She was on her way to becoming an established actor at the time when she met him and that all came to a halt when they got together. And after they broke up, she found out that Hef had like sent out notices to people like to not let her, her get work yeah. and things like that. And so she never had the career that she wanted. And also he was depriving her of being able to make her own money and be financially stable on her own. And she says, if I didn't have any money, I couldn't leave. He kept me secluded and pretty much under his thumb. And I think that that says a lot about... You know, even Kendra, when you're talking about that, he had control over these women's careers, their private lives, everything. And while I think some people could see that as being taken care of and cared for, I think that you can also see it as incredible emotional, sexual, and financial abuse. You, really. you don't imprison someone that you love. No. Right? Like you don't try and force them to stay or force them to do things that they don't want to do. And speaking of that, so this would include Kendra. The girls next door cast were forced to sign a contract under duress. So his former girlfriends, Bridget, um, Holly, they were both interviewed for that series. And they say that they signed their contracts under duress. Quote, I was in the shower and all of a sudden Hef is standing there. He opens up the shower door like, why aren't you signing this contract? I need you to sign this contract. Bridget said, I signed the contract crying, soaking wet. She added, they made it very clear to us that if we didn't want to do it, there would be a million girls who would want to take our place. Um, and then Holly explained that she was initially hesitant to sign because she felt it was a contract to be in a relationship with Hugh Hefner. Mm. And that felt very, and this, these are her words, prostitute-ish to yeah. me. Um, this, it, it wasn't and a And that normal, was a, a contract for the TV show or what was the contract I think for? it was a contract for the show and also like... I'm sure that there was stuff in that contract about what their behavior had to be like and how they had to portray their relationship with him right. for and, the show. And maybe what their behavior had to be during filming and, you know, all of those types of things, what to talk about, what not to talk about. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, and Holly went on to say that she felt like very humiliated by Hef throughout that series, but she... I think she was contractually obligated to display this like very affectionate. We're just a normal family. We're just a yeah. normal relationship. It's so um, weird. Kind of thing whenever that wasn't always the case, obviously. Yeah. Um, and to some extent, that's all reality TV, right? It's yeah, all fake. It's just that there are so many power dynamics at play. And I think that 
if that show were around right now, I think that we would see that a lot. Like, I think that witnessing Hugh Hefner with these women would have a very different response now than it did when we were kids having Girl Next Door come on and things like that. I think, oh, I think there'd be way more digging into what life was actually like and things like that, which is why it's so upsetting that they were able to get away with so much for so long. I mean, throughout his life, I feel like he never really had to be held accountable for anything that he ever did. Yeah, no, I don't. I, you can tell even by, you know, when he died, the tributes that were paid to Hugh Hefner when he died, you know, and again, this is a complicated individual. I'm not saying that there's nothing positive that you could ever say about no. Hugh Hefner, but to completely ignore the fact that these women went through hell very often. I mean, the suicide rate for playmates is higher than that of the average American woman, oh you know, gosh. in part due to high substance abuse and drug overdoses, but also depression, like the depression rate among um, among playmates. Yeah. Is and I mean, high. think about eating disorders that are formed and other mental health problems that are formed by being imprisoned truly and by being controlled I mean that doesn't surprise me at all and I think that it's so sad that we weren't able to you know maybe we were able to see it but we weren't able to acknowledge or do anything about it yeah I mean and I feel like that was so much they they talk about in that interview about the cleanup crews which you know that there had to have been people who were covering this up because you know for instance one playmate actually committed suicide or completed suicide at the carriage house of the mansion and wrote Hugh Hefner is the devil (gasps) across a mural of magazine pages at the carriage house. So that is all stuff that like anybody who's like really looking at it, you know that they had people doing a lot of like serious PR, a lot of serious cleanup. Because if anybody had heard that, they'd be like, hey, maybe we should take a closer look at the way these women are having to live. 100%. You know, definitely. Um, Of course, there are countless accusations of rape and physical abuse that happened there. That is not surprising at all. There were celebrities, known sexual abusers like Bill Cosby, Roman Polanski, um, who would frequent there. There was one woman who said cracked ribs and broke jaws were (laughs) an occurrence that would happen there. Oh, my God. Um, I don't like what that insinuates. No, I mean, and then they would basically for lack of a better word, you know, pimp these women out and traffic them really into like corporate parties, like have them work, quote unquote, corporate parties where things would get very much um, go off the rails there. Um, So it's just... And and it goes on and on and on. Like it goes on and on and on. You could sit here and you could read... um, tale after tale of the things that happened. There was also a trove of sex tapes in Hugh Hefner's room where he would tape him having sex with women um, or with people without their consent um, and then keep those tapes. And it also shows a lot of really like abusive things happening. Yeah. So it's just it... (sighs) He's complicated. And I and we didn't mention this. I don't think we mentioned this on the show. We might have just talked about it before we hit record. But in the interviews, someone discusses how there was two sides of Hugh Hefner and they didn't think that those two sides were always communicating with each other. Right. And yeah. it, that was why he was able to just be naive to these things that he was doing because he was able to focus on the good that he thought that he was doing in the world. And in my opinion, that's like a great example of like narcissism, you know, when you're able to excuse your behavior for the good quote unquote of, 
people or whatever you're deciding you're doing good for, you know? Right. I mean, and again, like two things can be true. We can say that the legacy of Playboy and um, what it represented in the early days of the sexual revolution, that those things were net positive in terms of like pushing the American culture, American mindset further mindset into a more like sexually positive place and also say it did it at the expense of exploiting hundreds, hundreds of women. Yeah. And um, I liked this quote, Dr. Thekla Morganroth, who researches gender stereotypes at the University of Exeter said, quote, Hugh Hefner was not a feminist or liberator of women as some claim. Sure, he and his empire challenged prudish norms in the 1950s, according to which women were chaste virgins or caring mothers, but women remained sexual objects in his portrayals. I don't think there is anything inherently bad about nudity or even pornography, but his idea of sexual liberation remained one in which women were objects with the purpose of providing pleasure to men. This was equally reflected in how he portrayed his lifestyle, in which women functioned as accessories and status symbols, not as equal partners. He did not empower women. He gave them just one more restrictive role to choose from. Mm-hmm. And I love that quote. Yeah, it's <sighs> it perfectly encapsulates my feelings about Playboy and my feelings about Hugh Hefner. Totally. Like, yes, I'm glad that some of these women felt liberated. I'm glad that we're at a place where we can normalize nudity. Um, but Hugh Hefner didn't do that because he was a feminist. He didn't no. do that because he cared about He did women. it for the sake of men and for the pleasure of men. Yeah. I and mean, that's what we have to acknowledge. And there were even women in that documentary, you know, several of them in the interview that I watched, um, where they said that they felt like Hugh Hefner hated women. Yes. That he didn't actually... The, yes, they were like, no, he doesn't love women. Are you kidding me? Yeah. No. Yeah. He loves having sex with them, probably. Yeah, you and know? exploiting them, and he probably loves looking at them. Like, I'm yeah. sure he thinks that... There's lots of things he loves about them, but he doesn't love them. Beautiful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I did read, you know, so he died in 2017. Bye. Um, yeah. His family no longer owns any of the Playboy stuff. Apparently, they want to turn it into, like... Uh, like a place where you can buy like sex toys and stuff. They tried to rebrand to, they tried to take the nudity out of Playboy and everybody was like, um. Oh, and like even Gloria Steinem had a lot to say about that. She was like, you can take the nudity out, but you would have to rebrand the entire thing to make it not sexist. Like you can't even, like Playboy is Playboy because of the nudity. It was literally built on and that's why it's cool. And that's why it's still cool today. I mean, there are designers doing collaborations with the Playboy logo. There's PacSun that has their own Playboy line. I mean, it's crazy how much that symbol has come back, especially with the knowledge that we have of it. But I think that there's still something cool about it because it's a little wrong. It's a little yeah. raunchy. It's provocative and I think that even though we know all those really shitty things about it there's still something about that bunny logo that keeps coming back you know though (laughs) I really do want to know I want to know how many fellow millennials got a playboy bunny tattoo in the early 2000s that now regret it (laughs) oh my god how many soccer moms how many millennial like soccer moms are hiding a playboy bunny tattoo on their hip probably so many so many so many because it was so comment when I said so comment like I could not believe that in middle school we were just people were rocking playboy bunny gear at my middle school oh yeah 
straight up like 13 year olds. <laughs> I mean, I went to Catholic school, so not in my middle school, but like definitely in high school. Mm-hmm. And I definitely remember seeing it all at the mall. Yeah. You know, the earrings, everything. That yeah. Bunny was everywhere. Yeah. <sighs> all right. Well, that is all we have for you today. If you have any great suggestions for us to talk about in the future, please go ahead and email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message us on Instagram at angry neighborhood feminist. We have a Facebook business and group page. You can rate and review us on the business page and chat with the other listeners on the group page. And last but certainly not least, if you haven't done so already, please leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoyed the show on your Apple Podcast app. It truly does help us a whole lot. All right, that's all we have for you today. With all that being said, we encourage you to rage on. Bye. What does feminism mean to you? During Women's History Month, come explore feminism and how it's playing out in real life with season two of Thread the Needle, a monthly podcast. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I use my background in journalism and draw on women's life experiences to add to the conversation on topics that matter to fellow feminists like you. Now in its second season, listen to new episodes each month as we explore finding yourself through divorce, battling call-out culture, questioning our ideas about masculinity, and discovering why girls' confidence plummets in their preteens. Guests include Stephanie Kuntz, historian and author of Marriage, a History, April White, author of Divorce Colony, and Loretta Ross, professor on white supremacy and call-out culture at Smith College. Listen to Thread the Needle on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.